This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Whitley Strieber, perhaps best known for his book Communion, which of course was made into a major Hollywood motion picture. He's here. He's also a longtime experiencer or contactee, if you wish, and he has a brand new book called A New World, and Whitley is with us for the entire two hours. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network will be my special co-host tonight. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer, and yes, we are live streaming this radio transmission on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Please check it out. We just hit 23,000 subscribers, and we're trying to get to that next level. Can we get to 25,000 before Christmas? Hit that red sub button, why don't you? All right, a quick uh, programming note. I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM, sitting in for George Norrie on Friday, November the 27th, Friday, November 27th, and then back in the Coast Air Chair on Saturday, November the 28th. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. And before we get rolling, one other order of important business. I want to say thank you and hello to Eldon from Corpus Christi, Texas. Eldon, thank you so much for the letter and kind words and uh, the most generous uh, donation, which was uh, totally uh, unexpected. But thank you so much. I was very touched by your, your kindness. Eldon in Corpus Christi, hope you're listening tonight. Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zeland News Communications and Zeland News Network. Victor, welcome. How are you, my friend? Just fine, Richard. It's great to be with you on this very momentous uh, evening with uh, with the guests that we have tonight. Yeah, this, I think, promises to be pretty revelatory, I'd say. All right. In uh, 2015, Whitley Strieber experienced a stunning return of strange beings that he had met in 1985 and written about in the mega bestseller communion a new world starts in september 2015 describes experiences he's had as recently as october of 2019 no longer is the world wondering about whether or not this is all real 
In 2018, the U.S. Navy admitted that videos taken off the carrier Nimitz by pilots using ultra-sophisticated cameras were of unknown objects with incredible flight characteristics. Add to this the past 70 years of UFO evidence, and it is now undeniable that something unknown is flying around in our skies. They're here, but why? There are millions of close encounter witnesses who'd say that they're here for us and have already been in contact with us for two generations, while the official world and the media have been in denial. A New World describes what it's like not just to encounter them, but to live in contact with them. It'll shatter all of our previous theories and beliefs and reveal the experience for what it is, the strangest, most powerful, and potentially most important thing that has ever happened to mankind. Whitley Strieber is widely known for his best-selling account of his own close encounter, Communion, A True Story, and has produced a television special based on confirmation for NBC. He's also the author of the vampire novels, The Hungry, The Hunger, rather, The Last Vampire, and Lilith's Dream, and is the host of his, uh, his own popular podcast, Dreamland, his website. The world's most popular site featuring topics of the edge of science and culture is unknowncountry.com. Again, his new book, A New World. Whitley Strieber, welcome aboard. How are you? Well, thank you very much for having me. Where have we reached you tonight? What part of the country? I'm in California. Ah, okay. So you're avoiding the big snowstorm we had here. Yeah, well, uh, I'm also having uh, another allergy attack. I've apparently become allergic to California. I'm not alone in this, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get through the show without me collapsing. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, for hanging in for the full two hours tonight. Oh, sure. I, I want to go back to uh, uh, December 26, 1985. And for those, there may be a few, hard to believe, but there may be a few who have not read Communion and are not familiar with these entities that you encountered. You describe them as having darting big eyes insectoid, along with some stocky, dark blue trolls. Uh, tell me about that. It sounded almost uh, as if, if it was kind of a violent encounter. You were injured. Yeah, I was injured. I, uh, if what happened was a, something, it came out of nowhere as far as I was concerned. I was not a UFO believer, not interested, and I hadn't been since I was a child. I had been in, when I grew, was growing up in the 50s, who could not be interested, because it was all over the newspapers and the television in those days. But then, suddenly, this I woke up on the morning of the 26th in a very strange state. I was upset and confused, and had not, obviously, not had a good night. Um, I remembered a quite a ruckus, I would say, and um, but had no explanation for it because it had been a quiet night in our little vacation home in upstate New York. It was just so that I didn't really understand. Finally, I decided that an owl must have gotten into the house. But as my wife gently pointed out to me, since all the windows were closed and we had no fireplace and the wood stove had been burning all night, that was not possible. So as evening fell, I decided that the owl, which I could not get out of my mind, these huge big eyes, must have been standing on the windowsill of our bedroom. 
And I went up to the bedroom in the sun, as the sun was setting and looked at the windowsill. It was snowy, and so there would have been footprints in the snow along the sill, and there were none. And I can remember feeling the most disturbing feeling, nameless and quite awful at that moment. And then, you know, night came on, and I just went through hell. I, I had a very difficult night. The next day, I was in considerable pain and uh, very confused. I, I couldn't figure out what to think of the memories that were beginning to float back into my mind. A confused it felt like I'd been beaten up or been at some kind of wild party. It was just inexplicable. And I I let this go on for a few days. And um, I finally I started writing a story called Pain, which reflected my inner feelings, I mean, being a writer. And um, during the time I was writing this story, I happened to pick up a book that my brother had sent me for Christmas called Science and the UFOs and or about that time I'm I might not be the timeline might not be absolutely precise but at some point I picked up the book and um I read a bit of it and kind of forgot about it but then by then I was getting clear that something had happened to me I was I was hurting physically my my rectum was Injured and my head, I had an injury in my head, and uh, I had these what I regarded as vivid memories of hallucinatory experience of some kind. And frankly, I began to think I had been attacked by someone who had used some kind of mind altering substance on me, and that led me to think that. My book, War Day, which I had published about a year and a half before, might have caused a negative reaction uh, from the, the then the Reagan administration. Because as it happened, it, it, it was a book of, an, a, against limited nuclear war, and the dangers, about the dangers of limited nuclear war, and it had been sort of picked up by the left quite unexpectedly to me because I'm not really a member of the left and uh, used to uh, destroy a Reagan initiative to fund FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, to harden our industrial infrastructure against nuclear attack. And so that had happened, and I had been warned by a Senate uh, uh, staffer that I might be targeted for for the book. And in those days, it was still commonplace for people to get what were known as political tax audits, where the IRS would come in and start auditing every penny and cost you a lot of money with your accountant and just generally hassle you. That's not done anymore, but it was fairly common then, and so I assume that would might be what happened. And my taxes are so simple that 
<laughs> it wouldn't have been much of a big deal, so I just forgot about it. Then I thought to myself, well, maybe this is it. Maybe they tried to drive me crazy. Some sort of electronic harassment. Well, no, I mean, it was physical. It was that night was a physical thing. Right. And so I thought uh, I had seen someone during the event. I, I recalled seeing a man I had known in high school and college, and in fact, in grade school, too. We'd been friends for many years, and he joined the Central Intelligence Agency and sort of dropped out of my life. But I still had what I thought was his phone number, his home phone number in, in Houston. And so I telephoned him because I thought I'd seen him with these strange beings that I now remembered. And I thought, well, there were no strange beings. They don't, don't, don't exist, but he exists. And maybe I was drugged, and maybe he had something to do with it because, you know, he would have done it. I mean, I, I'm sure if he'd been ordered to, he would have. He was a very patriotic man. And um, when I called him, his phone number was disconnected, so I thought, well, he's moved. And I called his brother. This is, this is now, I guess, February, January, yeah, February of 1986. His brother told me, well, he died last March. So he'd been dead for months when I saw him big as life and talked to him. And I thought, what the heck? Then I went to the doctor. I told the whole story to the doctor, including the story of the little men and the, all that stuff, which I just thought was stupid. And uh, He said, well, it sounds to me like you're telling me you're taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. I said, yeah, I know it does. And uh, what am I going to do about this? And he said, well, I think two things. I think the first thing we need to do is an MRI scan of your brain, and then you need to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Let's Let's get this things straightened out and I said yeah because I mean I thought my god I've had a psychotic break and I went practically crazy I I went I thought to myself I've got to my wife will be if I end up psychotic what is how is she going to support our son if she's not divorced from me before I'm I end up having to be committed she can't get rid of me and, you know, so I started trying to get her to divorce me, and it was just an unbelievable dust-up, the whole family. And uh, I continued reading the book my, my brother had given me. It was an odd business, you know. He had found the book in a bookstore in San Antonio, and what was strange about it was it was, it was uh, lying out on a, on a table, and he didn't even know really why he'd picked it up. He just felt like I might like it. And he was interested in UFOs. I was not. And he tried to buy it, and they said, well, it's not in our inventory, and it's denominated in British currency. But we'll sell it to you anyway for $5 or something. And so he bought it and sent it to me. But here's the weird part. It seems to me that somebody put it there for him to find. Mm. Isn't that strange? And then, um, anyway, I get into the book. And I get toward the end, and there's this story about this guy called Bud Hopkins, and it describes a UFO, an alien abduction, and it sounded just like what happened to me. And so um, I told my wife all this, and she, 
she reacted. I said, honey, I think I might have been taken aboard a flying saucer by aliens. And she said, oh, thank God, I thought you were going crazy. <laughs> not the uh, not the response you were were well, uh, thinking my of. My wife was one of the coolest and smartest people I ever knew in my life. I mean, if there's anyone in the world who could roll with a thing like that and make it make sense, it was Anne, and she did right. just that. We should we should point out Whitley that you had these neurological uh, exams and they they checked for something called frontal lobe ep- epilepsy, which temporal can cause epilepsy. hallucinations. Oh, yeah, I had everything, not just temporal yeah. lobe epilepsy. We checked for psychotics, an exhaustive series of psychological tests, uh, brain scans, uh, all kinds of tests, including tests for various diseases that cause hallucinations, including temporal lobe epilepsy. And I came out, where I came out was, A, I had an, a, not just a stable, normally stable brain in terms of seizure uh, related stuff, but an unusually stable brain. And um, in terms of psychological tests, what they found was a consistent, deep level of stress, but no sign of any psychotic problems of any kind whatsoever. So you, you add those two things up, and what do you get? You get where I came to. Something happened to me. So I decided, what the hell, I know I, we are going to go over and see this Hopkins character. He lived not far from us in Manhattan. So we went over to see him. He was a very sweet guy, beautiful home, all kinds of beautiful books and everything. He was an artist. And I, um, I talked to him and told him pretty much what I just told you and he was fascinated, and he said, well, he, he wanted to hypnotize me. And I thought to myself, he's an artist. I don't he see any medical licenses anywhere around here. So I said, no, I'd rather not do that. I'd, if I'm going to talk to anyone, it would be a, have to be a psychiatrist who's skilled in, in, in the kind of interrogation you say we need, because he was telling me that, these were, that there were actual memories behind all the confusion, and they were buried. And by the stress and by the trauma, which I could easily believe. So he introduces me to the head of the New York State Department of Psychiatry, Dr. Donald Klein. And Dr. Klein is a forensic hypnotist who solved many criminal cases with his ability to extract seemingly forgotten facts from people. So this all this stuff that went on after my book came out of a, lie detectors don't work, and B, hypnosis is nonsense, or just false, because it's not nonsense, and it works well in the hands of a real pro like he was. I had three sessions with him. The first session concerned an incident that happened in October of 1985, when two friends, Annie Gottlieb and Jacques Sandalescu, were in the house, the country house, and they were asleep in a guest room downstairs. Andrew, my little boy, was sleeping next in the next room. And they, um, 
there came, I was awakened in the middle of the night by an incredibly bright light shining in the windows, like sunlight. And then it just disappeared with a loud bang. And everyone started yelling. My little boy started yelling. Jock and Annie were, I could hear their voices. I thought initially when the light came, when I woke up to all this light, I thought that roof was on fire. But then obviously when the light went out, it wasn't. So I proceeded to run downstairs and tell everybody everything was okay. And then go in and comfort my little boy, who was seven years old, six years old. And, uh, but it wasn't okay. Obviously, what the heck happened? Later, Annie, in the morning, Annie said she had heard our cats running on the, running across the floor upstairs. We were, we, their, their bedroom was immediately below us. And the problem was our cats weren't there. So what were those scurrying footprints she'd heard, foot, footfalls she'd heard? Jacques found the light so bright that he thought it was morning, and he got up because he thought he'd overslept. But the night was dark and foggy. So when I got hypnotized, I remembered seeing these dark blue figures in the room, and I just totally lost it. The hypnosis session is mostly the sound of me screaming. Uh, it was unbelievably terrifying. Unbelievably. To just see things that aren't supposed to exist standing right there, right beside your bed. I think you described them as stocky, dark blue trolls. Right, exactly. I, I know them now. I've, I've had them in my life for years, and I'm not scared of them at all anymore. In fact, looking back, it's hilarious that I ever was scared of them. But in any case, I sure was. And you can understand when something like that arrives in your bedroom without warning, it's going to be profoundly concerning, to say the least. It was so, and so I had blocked it all out. Then the second hypnosis session comes. And we go to the business of, of December the 26th. And the whole thing just opened up in my mind in vivid detail. It wasn't- Whitley, pardon, pardon the interruption. We're going to take a time out here. We'll come back and we'll get you to uh, continue on with the, uh, the second uh, hypnosis session, taking us back to December 26th, 1985. That really started it all. Whitley Strieber, his new book is A New World. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network stays with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Whitley Strieber is with us for the full two hours. His latest book is A New World. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network also with us. Special guest host, Whitley. Before we get back to that second hypnosis session, I just want to work uh, Victor in here. Victor, what do you make of what you've heard so far? Well, it's uh, it is extremely fascinating for sure. Um, my experience, I think, Whitley, you should know that um, uh, I've had some uh, rather intense experiences with Bud Hopkins. Uh, I have interviewed him several times, and also I spent time with John Mack in his office in, um, in at the Harvard office. 
in, in Boston. And so my background in all of this is not something totally new. So I think that that kind of context is important for, for you to know and, and, and where I'm coming from. And I've, I've done so much reading. And when I read the book, first of all, Communion, um, I have read that book five times, Whitley, um, in addition to uh, con- Victor, you're breaking up a little bit. We may have to get you to rejoin us uh, by phone sure. here in a moment. But uh, do you want to get okay. your your question, and then we'll we'll get you okay, to reconnect. Sure. Try. Yeah. No, I'm just wondering uh, what what kind of experiences you've you've had from the beginning. Okay, we've lost. Uh, okay, Victor, we're going to have to get you to reconnect. I'm, I am uh, apologies there. We'll uh, we'll get him on the phone. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. We'll we'll get you to uh, just proceed while we're waiting for Victor to rejoin us, Whitley. The second uh, hypnosis session that you had. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, your second hypnosis session. Okay. We, we you had want some, me to continue? Yeah. Sorry, we had some technical difficulties with oh, Victor that, there, but fine. we'll get him okay. back. Yeah. I, okay. I'll pick it up. Um, the second hypnosis session. The first thing that happened was. The memories of the beings became very vivid. From the time I was in the woods with them, not before that, but from then, I felt myself go up like in an elevator, but it was uh, not, I, I was not in anything. It was just, I just rose up into the sky. I saw the woods below me. I was sitting in this circle of these beings with the friend I had mentioned before who was already dead. I went up into the air and I found myself in a little round room and there were all kinds of things going on it was very crowded there were these uh, fellows with uh, big uh, black eyes and the little trolls were jumping around in there it was a chaotic scene and they proceeded to insert into me a device called a, uh, uh, a, a device that, that causes a an electrical current. I didn't know this at the time. Of course, I'd never heard of such a thing. But it turns out it was a commonplace thing that was used in those days to uh, help people who had sexual dysfunction and unable to have erections, and still used to this day in animal husbandry because it, what it does is it it, in, it causes a mild electrical current to go into the nerve that causes an erection. And so you can hear me on the in, on the. Uh, hypnosis saying, saying that I've got this erection, I don't know where it came from, because I can assure you that there was nothing in that room that would have suggested that I might want to have an erection. So then they proceeded to milk me like a cow. It was grotesque. And um, I struggled, and they, they turned on a machine that kept saying in this quiet, sort of pleasant female voice that was also very mechanical, what can we do to help you stop screaming? What can we do to help you stop screaming? The, not, the answer was not a damn thing. Uh, I ended. That's where I ended up with this rectal injury that became an, an international joke. I became an international laughingstock for having been raped. And you know, people are so sensitive these days to the idea of of that but when it comes to women but when it comes to a man it's still open season on me but it hurts in in the heart very much to be laughed at for being raped especially because 
the injury was so severe that I struggled with it for 20 years afterwards. It took me most of those years to even say the words to my wife, what the doctor had said to me so long ago, Whitley, you have been raped. And I can say it now quite easily, but it took a, it was a long journey from there to here, believe me. And, you know, I'm still the butt of jokes, and I do mean butt. Uh, uh, People snicker at it, and I wonder to myself every time it happens. You know, they used to, in the old days, they used to pay money to go to watch people suffer in hospitals and stuff in the 18th century. And people still like that. They still enjoy that. And I just never know why... Having an experience like this makes you very sensitive and aware of the suffering and needs of others. I'll ta- I'll say that for it. So anyway, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I I wanted to. Uh, I mean, I I don't know how to move on from that in a way because it's it's what you just said is so uh, profound and and deeply disturbing the way that you were treated that way. Uh, but. Um, I wanted to ask you about these these insectoid type uh, creatures that you also discussed. These big eyed insects. I think you, you you described them as what what role were they playing in, in this? This looked like their 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 game. It looked like their game. Uh, the little guys that were running around were their were their workers. It seems to me um, uh, they were sort of semi independent. Uh, I recently had a. I have a very complex life, I have to tell you. And I, there's no point in describing four-fifths of it because it's, in, it's, beyond, it's beyond the description. But in any case, I do know something about these entities now. I do not know where they're from. I do not know precisely what they are in terms of their relationship to reality. In other words, I don't know whether there's some other planet that they're walking around on in this universe or that there's something entirely different, but I do know certain things about them. I have recently learned that they are what are called, what I was described to me as nesting entities. In other words, they don't have the same kind of individuality that we do. They have a hierarchical nature with, uh, if you can conceive of a of a hive with a queen bee, and then then around the queen bee layers and layers of ever less independent entities, and you have to think of the hive as a single person, and it, it's a great mistake when you see a group of them together to assume that they're all individual entities like us because they're not, and they also therefore have a very different vision of reality than we do, and a different meaning. The world means something to them that's different from what it means to us. And those are all things I've been chewing on lately, and uh, trying to understand how to have a relationship with them, because they do come into my life quite frequently now. I'm not scared of them at all anymore. I understand what about them what there is a level of their them there that are predators, but Hopkins was absolutely right about that. He he got 
angry at me because of the way communion was published which he blamed me for i had nothing to do with the way it was published it was done by the publisher and uh and he remained angry at me for the rest of his life but that doesn't mean he was wrong about, about a lot of things right right it only means that he that he got angry and i couldn't do anything about it i tried to but he he wouldn't you know he was too furious and so in any case uh there is something going on that involves the removal of human sexual material, uh, both eggs and sperm. I'm convinced of it. I certainly had sperm removed from my body. I know many women who describe eggs being moved, removed, and I know many people just like me who have seen babies that are apparently somehow a part of this other reality. Uh, that 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 started with their own genetic material, their own sexual material, and uh, you know you you add all of that up, and you think to yourself, maybe this is not something that we're going to really enjoy all that much when we understand it more fully. And um, however, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the amount of knowledge I have gained from my relationship with them. And the caring that has developed over the years, as I have never, I have never turned away from this as much as I wanted to. I'll tell you this. After I realized it was real, this was about March of 86, I said to Anne, you know, I have to figure this out. I have to figure out what I'm going to do. And she said, well, why don't you, why don't you try to recontact them? And I thought, how in the world would I do that? And then it occurred to me there was only one thing I could do, which was to go back out in the woods in the night to where they had taken me up from, which I'm pretty sure I knew where it was, and just try. You, you had stopped going to the cabin for some time after that, that incident. Well, yeah, we, we got a little bit iffy about the cabin. Sure, understandably. Yeah. Listen, what, then, they have got to, uh, pardon the interruption, I've got to no, take another okay. quick time then out. We, start, we'll, we started going back on weekends again. And okay. um, I, was, I had been very obsessively guarding my family. I had a, I bought a Benelli riot gun, which anybody who knows shotguns knows that's a, a fairly serious weapon, and a, a little AMT backup a pistol, which it's a hard pistol to shoot, but I can shoot it well. And um, I mean, it's so small, it, you know, it's not accurate, but, uh, but you have to really learn to use. I, I knew how to use both weapons, and in any case, I used to march around the house at night with the shotgun ready to blow the head off of anything I saw that looked suspicious. Well, we've got to take a time out. happened uh, to have shown up, but none did. We've got to take a time out here, Whitley. Thank God you didn't use it, as we'll discover. Uh, there's a whole other story behind that. Uh, and we'll uh, pick this up on the other side. Whitley Strieber is with us. The new book is A New World. Victor Vigiani has rejoined us. We'll get him in here as well. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there, it's right here. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani is uh, back with us along with uh, Whitley Strieber. The new book is A New World. Uh, Victor, take it away. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Whitley, about that uh, earlier kind of um, audio glitch that we had. Um, just want to give you a bit of context where I'm coming from. Um, I, I, I've, I knew Bud quite well. I uh, did several interviews with him in, in addition to that. Having spent some time with John Mack in his Harvard office uh, at Cambridge, um, so my background is is fairly intense in having worked with individuals, and uh, I read your book. I read Communion uh, and Confirmation, and after that, I read the 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 Communion book five times, five times. I had to, I had no choice um, because of the intensity of it. Uh, what I want to ask you, and and I think you probably went through this in a number of different ways, when this all first started, the intensity and the visceral confusion you're going through, and as you move through it, when did it become evident to you that there was a transition from being sort of a victim into someone who became enlightened by the whole experience? When did that happen, and, and how did it happen? No, that's a good question, boy. I don't often get asked that question. I made that happen, period. It started when, as I was talking about a few moments ago before we went into the break, deciding to go into the woods at night, back to the place where I thought it had happened, which was not easy. Because remember, at that point in my life, I thought I was... Yeah, they might be aliens and they might not, but there was one thing that was very clear. They were monsters, and they had really roughed me up. And now I knew from through Bud, other people who had also had horrible experiences with them. So that was what I had to confront, and I had to confront it in the dark, in the middle of the night, alone, night after night, going out there trying to get them to return to my life. And the academics I'm, like Jeffrey Kripal I'm involved with now, explain that what happened to me was an initiatory experience. That is to say, a complete overturning of your reality. You, everything is turned inside out, and that's exactly what happened. And I just wanted to make sense of it. I, you know, if, if, I said to Anne, you know, if I get eaten, I get eaten. And she said, well, leave something behind to prove you're dead, because otherwise I, I won't get the insurance money for seven years. And and she was she said, you know, Whitley, don't get hurt, honey. And she I remember the night the second night, the first night I could only make it to the edge of the yard. It was just not I just could not walk any further into that woods. And I the second night she she held me in my arm her arms and she said Please, Whitley, you come back to me. But she didn't stop me. And I went out there again. And I finally made it down to the place where it had happened. And I went back to the house. And that began a period of years where I would go often deep into the woods. There was a cave back in the woods on a cliff overlooking a little, what they're called up there, kills, a little stream. And I would go down in that cave and turn out the light. You had to climb down a cliff to get into the cave and turn out my light and be in there 
completely alone and completely helpless to show that I was available to be recontacted, that I wanted more. And the result was a new life, quite frankly, because they did come back. They came back in all kinds of different ways, and they're still here. I mean, I meditate with them every night at three, every night. And there's you, always you st- you still of... You still do that. You still yeah, do the absolutely. meditation at three. I'm, as that's involved, been a... I'm more involved with them now than I've ever been before in my life. I, can, yeah, you, I know you, you... how to interact with them mentally, and uh, I have a implant in my left ear that I've learned to use, and I use it as it's a research tool, and it's excellent. It really is a very good tool. And the story of it is so extraordinary. It'll, it takes you beyond where we are now. I mean, anyone who's thinking about aliens from another planet had better just put that down in the corner with a little bitty, that's a little bitty part of this huge, extraordinary thing that tells us every, the deeper you get into it, the more incredible we become the universe becomes and they become uh whitley this is a short segment so we're gonna have to step away again when we come back i want to pick up on on something you mentioned uh, about death uh and and that's that connection to all of this something that your wife said in the early 90s that you think is perhaps the most important thing that has ever been said about these experiences and we'll uh, we'll do that on the other side Whitley Strieber his new book A New World Victor Vigiani Zeland News Network stays with us back with more of The Conspiracy Show don't go away the truth is not out there it's right here The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Whitley Strieber is with us along with Victor Vigiani and Whitley's website, unknowncountry.com, the new book, A New World. And uh, as I mentioned before the break, your your late wife, Anne, back in the early 90s, she she said something that that really is central to the theme of this book, I think. And you say it's the single most important thing about the experience that has ever been said. What did she say, Whitley? Well, she came out of her office one afternoon, and here's what was going on. We were having huge amounts of letters coming in. This is before email, fortunately. Uh, And I say fortunately because all of these letters have, excuse me, All of these letters have now been saved at Rice University in a, in a Whitley and Ann Strieber archive, or I should say an Ann and Whitley Strieber archive, because it was all her work. In any case, um, she was reading the letters, and she could, you know, she was reading them and cataloging them, and her, her secretary, Laurie Barnes, was helping her, and, you know, they were going through a lot of letters. I mean, a lot of letters. And... Um, she came out of her office one time, afternoon, and she said, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, 
I'm not going to say his name because you don't want to say the name of intelligence agents on the air uh, because they, you know, real ones don't like that, and and it's because their families could be exposed to danger. So uh, I'm not going to say his name. He said he was dead when you saw him. I said, yeah, and I was assuming by that at that point that that must have been some kind of weird hallucination. I just didn't know what, it, what to make of it. She said, well, Whitley, people have that happen to them all the time. And then it occurred to me that we'd had many people by that time at the cabin who had had the experience of the visitors would come to the cabin and they would come and, you know, groups of people would see them. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't a... And those people are all named in my book. In fact, it's probably... My, my life is probably one of the most extensively multiple witness paranormal experiences there has ever been. And so in any case... In any case it occurred to me that, well, my goodness, of course, because the dead dead friends and relatives have been involved in every single event that took place at the cabin, except the ones that were just involving me. And um, so it seems that the dead and the visitors are all wrapped up together somehow, and I think if these characters are aliens from another planet, then they do not have the barrier between the living and the dead that we do. And when they come, the barrier between us and our own dead simply collapses. And suddenly our own dead are, are with us. Um, well, exactly, a perfect example of this is Laurie Barnes herself. Uh, and uh, Laurie... Uh, was Anne was reading letter after letter, and she was saying, I, she said, I need a secretary. And I said, I would call Manpower, which was a secretarial, maybe still in business, I don't know. Anyway, she said, no, no, I'll find the secretary in the letter somewhere. And a while later, she says, here's our secretary. She hands me a letter. It's from this woman who says she's a singer and, a, and an actress. I said, well, doesn't say she's a secretary. She says, look at that handwriting. That's a professional's handwriting. And I said, but she says she's an actress and a singer. She says, have you ever heard of her? I said, no. She said, then she's making her money as a secretary. I'm going to call her. And she called her. And it turned out she lived like down the street, a couple of blocks away. And she came over and became Anne's secretary for 15 years. And her story is tied into the dead very profoundly for two reasons. The first is, one, on one of the biggest nights we ever had at the cabin, where many people had close encounter experiences and full wakefulness, it all started in the afternoon when she was out walking, and she suddenly found her brother face-to-face -face with her on the road in front of the cabin. And what was amazing about this to her is he'd been missing for 20 years, and she said, oh, my God, come down and meet my friends. And she said, he says, no, no, I just wanted to tell you I'm all right. And then instead of walking anywhere, it was the biggest life as far as she was concerned, he suddenly drifts back into the woods and disappears. And Anne said at that time, after she told us this story, she said to me quietly, the visitors will be here tonight. So she already knew then what was going on. And so 
But the other story about Lori is this. She had written us originally because back in 1952, she had been lying in bed in her house in Queens. Her husband, they were both musical people. He was out on a gig. It was 11 o'clock at night, and she noticed movement out of the corner of her eye, and she looked up. And these horrifying-looking dark blue trolls were standing in a row beside the bed. And she was appalled. And one of the first, the lead one said, do not be afraid. We're not here for you. We're interested in the girl child you're carrying. Yeah, that one. That oh, she said, "Oh, well, that's fun. I'm not scared anymore." Not quite. She was just terrified by that, of course. And uh, then it says to her, "She said, it says to her, why are you so frightened?" And she said, "Because you're so ugly." And it touched her hand with its dark blue gloved hand and said, "My dear, one day you will look just like us." And recently, a few months, a month or so ago, Lori passed away after a long life. And I interviewed her daughters on Dreamland on my podcast. And they told sort of their side of the story. And they've never had anything in their lives that would suggest why this interest was there in the older daughter. But they certainly believed the, the story. I mean, why wouldn't they? And uh, it's an improbable story, but when people tell the truth, it's per- if she, Laurie didn't make it up, she'd have no reason to. So, but what it tells me is, one possibility is that this has more to do with us in more ways that we do not understand and do not expect at our level. For example, if you take caterpillars and butterflies, or tadpoles and frogs, There are many species on Earth which have radically different forms at different stages in their development. What if we're such a species? And what if Laurie is now among those extraordinary and strange beings? But they are human in a way that we have never even suspected. I think that's a fascinating speculation, frankly. it's remarkable. It's, it's to turn a phrase. I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not right. going to debate anybody over it. But it's fascinating. Well, sure. to turn an old phrase, maybe where there is death, there is hope. Uh, well, we we're, don't we're approaching die in, in the in the in the final sense that some scientists will tell you at all. That is not the correct. We're approaching the uh, the top of the hour. We're going to take a break here, but I, I want to start this conversation now, and we'll we'll continue after. And of course, we'll get Victor back in here. But uh, after Anne passed away in 2015, your contact and experiences with these visitors intensified, and you believe you write that she may have something to do with this, her something that she's doing after death. Oh, Explain. Yeah. We'll get into that for sure. Well, we we have about uh, just a couple minutes. We can start okay, well, just dis- discussing I, it now. Yeah. Yeah. Annie died at 7.15 in the evening on August the 11th, 2015. The worst moment of my life. 
I afterwards my son and daughter were with me and I was devastated. I could not imagine life without Anne. Anne was a big personality, a brilliant person. She was the one who understood all the stuff that was happening much better than I did. And I was totally alone and then at 9:30 the phone rang. And it was a friend didn't know she had no way of knowing Anne had died. She knew Anne was sick. All of our friends did. And she said, "Whitley, I just heard Anne's voice in my ear saying, "Call Whitley." And I had been sitting there thinking, "Annie, if you're still here in any way, please, please give me some kind of sign." And that phone call came in, and I said to her, "Bell, Annie passed away at seven fifteen." And that was the beginning of what turned out to be a whole new kind of relationship with my wife. I'm still married as far as I'm concerned. I wear both rings now, and I look at it as we're still a couple. We're still married, only we're just down to one physical body. We only have one left. All right. We'll... um... We'll take a time out, come back, and we will continue uh, this remarkable discussion. Whitley Strieber, UnknownCountry.com, A New World, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, Zuma Radio here in Toronto. And hiya to those of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hey there to each of you streaming us at zoomerradio.ca and on the free app, Zoomer Radio. Hi to all of you streaming us on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and of course, All the faithful who assemble each and every week in the YouTube live chat. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Whitley Strieber is here, the author of Communion, which, of course, was made into a major motion picture starring uh, Christopher Walken, who played the role of Whitley Strieber in this true story. Uh, The Coming Global Superstorm, of course, co-authored by Art Bell, which was made into another blockbuster, The Day After Tomorrow. His new book is... A New World. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland News Network, stays with us as well. Victor, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, uh, th- thanks, Richard. Um, Whitley, I'd like to address something that I, uh, you spoke about. Uh, I forget exactly where you alluded to it in either one of your books. You, you spoke about how these beings, actually, it's, it's a two-pronged question. Um, uh, how many of these beings are there, do you figure, and then the, the other, the addendum to the question is, you alluded to how these beings uh, recognize our, a glow, uh, our, our internal attachment to who we are as beings. And once they recognize this so-called glow, 
that attachment begins almost automatically, and they recognize that in you. Could you talk to us about what that glow is? Uh, yeah, sure. I, first, I don't remember speculating about how many of them there might be. Mm-hmm. I have somewhere. I mean, every, every conceivable question I think I've been asked over the years. Yeah, the that's a tough would one. Be now, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have no idea how many there are. But, but with regard to the glow, that's another story. I can, I can certainly speak to that. The way back when, I had a number of, not a number, but one particularly intense incident of a dialogue with one or more of them. And this was not a physical dialogue, but it was so spontaneous that it was almost like listening to someone speaking to me over the phone. It was more than what you would call channeling or anything like that. And I asked at one point why they had come here. The answer was, we saw a glow. And I thought, oh, that must mean the glow of cities and so forth. It took me many years to understand that was not the glow, or not the only glow. There's another glow. And that is that back in 1970, I started uh, involved, being involved with the Gurdjieff Foundation. Uh, Gurdjieff Gurdjieff was an Armenian philosopher and spiritual uh, experimenter, I guess would be the best way to call it, who developed a system of inner work that enables us to wake up much more to the world around us than we normally are, to the point where you begin to realize as you do this that actually you are asleep most of the time. You're a waking sleep, in a wake state of waking sleep, and there's another much more vivid state of life that you can live in, at least in glimpses. And the way you do that is that you create what Mr. Gurdjieff called the double arrow, which is the attention looks inward and outward at the same time. And in order to develop this, you do something called the sensing exercise, which takes the attention and you place it on your body so that you are you are being attentive to your physical sensations as well as to what's going on in your mind. Because normally the attention is kind of riding on the body and it's inside the mind. And it turns out that when you do this, it changes this I did not know, and I don't think Mr. Gurdjieff did either, although he may have. Um, it changes the way you are, the way they see you. They can see this as a glow. In other words, what they were seeing was when I was out in that cabin with my wife alone and my little boy, I would do this sensing exercise every night at 11. And they would see this little glow out there in the woods, and they became curious and investigated. That's what I think happened. And I think also that it's obvious from my second hypnosis session with Donald Klein that they had been in my life when I was a child, and I had just, they'd withdrawn eventually, and I had just forgotten completely about them. So it was, for them, a renewal of a relationship. 
And for me, of course, it was the start of something entirely new. And what has become, at the time it happened, started, I was felt cursed. But now it has turned into, I have turned into something so very different from what I was then. I would never, I am consider myself incredibly lucky to have had them take an interest in me and stay with me in my life the way they have. I wouldn't you, have a relationship you, with my wife if it hadn't been for that. Right, right. Whitley, you talk about a, this communication gap and, and why they aren't more present in our lives. And you explain this in part by how you how they perceive reality. They have a, a different system of perceiving reality than we do. Uh, can you can you drill down on that a little bit uh, about the, yeah. the output versus input strategy? Yeah, um, we um, we have a there's two entirely different strategies of of of, of being of perceiving reality. Really, uh, we look at the world around us and we see it as uh, we see it as an as it, it comes into us but they look different very differently they see the world the the external world as a, as a kind of abstraction which to us is it's a reality you know, my wife, I think she, during her lifetime, she expressed this beautifully, and it's not really discussed so well in A New World as it could have been, because she called them inward beings. And they they look at reality from the inside looking out. We look at the outside looking... I mean, they look at reality looking into the inside of it. We look at it looking at the outside of it. So the result is that they see the world in a completely different way than we do. And I have worried, frankly, that they that maybe they don't understand what's going on with us as well as they should. Um, I'm just not sure. Because you so would we- think... We would see the whole apple, and they see the, what, the underlying mathematics see, of the yeah, apple? Exactly. They see, like, we see an apple as an apple. They see the mathematics underlying the apple. There's a wonderful book called Our Mathematical Universe, uh, which is a book by a physicist uh, who postulates that there are mathematical formula underlying reality that must have been there before the before reality and you know my my wife would have agreed with him his name is max tegmark his my wife would have agreed with him wholeheartedly because she believed this totally that there had to have been in other words when the big bang occurred the universe formed for a reason it 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 obeys mathematical law and those laws had to exist before it did. And they see the universe in the context of that math 
We see it in the context of the output of that math. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a totally, to, totally different ways of seeing. You add to that their, their uh, uh, nesting structure of their, of their mind, and boy, I mean, we are radically different from them. There's a huge gulf between us. Well, do you, do you think, Whitley, that do you think that they completely understand us, or do you think that they're completely confused by us? I think it's a mixture. I think that they are confused by us. I know they have been frequently confused by me, but Anne used to say, "Well, everyone's confused by you. You're, <laughs> of course, they're confused <laughs> by you." And. Yeah. Uh, um, but they, um, I do not think, I think they have points of startling insight. I think they know we are in trouble, that we are liable to go extinct. I think, I'm quite sure they know that. But I'm not so sure that they know and can understand what they might do to help us. Because they, 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 have, they have lavished me with information and relationship. And I've been able to write books like A New World and Afterlife Revolution that really would, if they were, if they had a large audience, they would, uh, they, they would be very foundational in terms of change. So I have understood them. But the problem is there's a gap now in that if you, like, the New York Times, for example, might publish Leslie Keene's articles, but they would never disdain to review my books. Uh, course, I yeah. know the people at TTSA very well, most of them who are in that, but they won't interview on Dreamland because they don't want to get in, they don't want to mix what they're trying to do up with the whole abduction phenomenon, which is a can of worms to them. And I can't blame them. I mean, I, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to get the media and the, and the scientific community to a point where there can be more focus on this on a broader scale, and they'll never do it if they get hooked up with somebody like me. So, of course, I mean, we're friends. Well, well I can understand of course. the position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a very intense conversation with Luis Elizondo uh, last week, and we went through a number of scenarios, and you bring up a very good point. I, and I, I brought up the, the idea of the abduction phenomenon and went through and just tried to figure out where the To the Stars Academy was on that issue. And I'll tell you something. Uh, he danced around that issue pretty, pretty, pretty carefully. I don't know what they think about what you're doing. And the reality that you're pointing to, I think, is is totally different than the political direction that they're going in. So there's a real a dissonance there. Well, there is. But they, you know, if unless we get this to the point, this whole thing, not just the abduction phenomenon, but the whole thing to the point where uh, the broad scientific community has cultural permission to study it, we're not going to get anywhere. And we can't, you, can't, you have to start smaller than the abduction phenomenon. You have to start with the UAPs, not calling them UFOs, was as uh, Chris Mel- Mel- Mellon correctly points out, mm-hmm. UFO already says unidentified flying object, but how do we know it's an object? 
UAP says unknown, a, 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 a phenomenon, unknown aerial phenomenon, an unidentified aerial phenomenon, and that's actually what it is. It's more accurate. But unless we get to the point where, like, for example, I don't believe to this day the National Science Foundation will allow foundational granting in this study area at all. And we got to get past where we are. And we're not going to get past it if people like him and Hal Pudoff and Louis Elizondo and the others in TTSA have got to defend a belief in abductions. It's just not ready yet. So I don't with, disagree yeah. with them at all. But I, they know that my door is open, that I'm, I'm always ready when they're ready to start a dialogue. And there will with, be hopefully a time when that happens. Whitley, you, you talk about the three broad reasons for the, the secrecy, the, the first two being military. They don't want a, us to panic, I guess, because they can't do anything about them. Then there's the weaponizing of the ET technology by the world powers. But then you cite a third one. You say the visitors themselves compel a degree of secrecy. They do it by cultural and social manipulation, and they're really good at it, you say. Explain. Yeah. What do you mean by that? This is their thing. They control it, I think, much more than we do. And they have taught me about the cultural background and the cultural foreground. And they told me years and years ago that I would move into the cultural background and stay there, which is where I am now. You don't see me on 60 Minutes, for example, but you see me in this incredibly rich background where you live, frankly, and, and all of us do where things are really change, change, real change happens. And eventually it boils over into the cultural foreground, but not now, not right now, and maybe not even in my lifetime. But in any case, the they, I think, have an exquisitely capable ability to understand our culture, and they do not want to do something which is called cultural colonization. I do, that's not necessarily their term. It's my term, and it's a you'll find it, uh, I suppose it's an anthropological term of some extent. In any case, what this is, is like in the 19th century when the British would show up on an island where the people were living basically still in the Stone Age, and suddenly here were these people with these wonderful cook pots and knives and cloth and all kinds of wonderful stuff. They forget their gods, forget their religions, forget their pots and their woven baskets. They wanted that stuff. And their culture just kind of stopped because they completely became focused on what this higher technology had. But was their culture somehow less the answer is no. It was just different. But they abandoned it anyway. Or in the case of the Native Americans, their culture was torn out of their lives by us. And their children were all put in schools, and they were punished for, for even speaking their native languages for many generations. Now they're trying to restore their cultures. But the, these visitors do not want to do that to us, and they know that the slightest general appearance will immediately refocus our whole culture basically on their pots and pans and cell phones. 
and we'll just forget about our own innovation and go for whatever we can get from them. And they don't want that to happen. And there was an article in the magazine Science in 1997, April issue, by uh, D.B.H. Kuyper and Mark Morris, which outlined this, and I don't have any idea if either one of these men knows a thing about the, the abduction phenomenon uh, or UFOs or anything. It's not referred to in the article. It's totally speculative. That aliens coming here would have only one reason for doing so, and that would be innovation, to find something new. And therefore, they would necessarily hide from us for the reasons I've just been discussing. So right now, the visitors are, I think they're in a quandary. I think they know that we are headed down a very dangerous path, and it could lead very easily lead to our extinction. At the, on the one hand, on the other hand, they also know that their reason for being here is to find something new by watching us discover the universe. And if they appear, then their reason for being here is gone. So, they're between, caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. If they continue to hide, we're liable to go extinct and their reason for being here is ruined. If they don't hide, then despite their best efforts, we become culturally colonized and their reason for being here is ruined. So I think it's driving them kind of crazy. I don't think they can figure it out, figure out how to get out of that conundrum. And, and on top of everything else, yeah. there's this yeah. communication gap. They're thinking in fractals and, and we're still using primitive language. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure our languages, for us, it's, our languages, some of them are not primitive at all. But in terms of the way they think, yeah. Absolutely. All right, we'll uh, take another. Sorry, we'll take another quick time out. Come back and uh, delve further into Whitley Strieber's remarkable life and experiences. Victor Vigiani stays with us from Zealand Communications. Back with more in a moment. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Whitley, at one point, one of these visitors communicated to you in some way they said we arrange atoms. What do you what do you suppose that that means? What are the implications? I'm not sure if Whitley did. Whitley, did you hear me? Are you there? They communicated that years and years ago to another close encounter witness. Ah. And but I thought, and I, at the time I had no idea what it meant. But over the years it has become clear what it means. It means that they can really do make anything into anything else. Because if you can manipulate the strong force, which is the force that uh, holds uh, 
atoms together, you can do anything. You can make anything into anything. And um, then you look forward in time to the materials that have been analyzed. There's uh, some materials that have been analyzed, and it appears that they have um, isotopic ratios that are not just not from Earth, but not from this universe at all. So are they from a, the materials from a parallel universe, in which case, why are they stable in this one? And if not, were they constructed, put together in, by somebody who could literally rearrange atoms? And what the energy, as we understand it, the energy that would be necessary to do that is immense. And the reason for doing it, we don't understand. We don't understand why you would want to or need to. Well, you're very careful to not to refer to these entities as aliens or ETs, just visitors. But you also believe there is perhaps a greater presence behind them, something that, that might play an even larger role in our development than, than they have. What do you mean by this? And I think you call it the presence. Yeah, the presence. The consciousness is a field. It is not simply between our ears. And this is something that the scientific community will very slowly, it's going to get to this, that it is consciousness is larger than we are. And in fact, as soon as you, as soon as you get to the point where you realize that consciousness doesn't end with the skull, you, it, it, it's not it, it just in the brain. You realize that, well, it, then where does it end? And the answer is maybe it doesn't end. Maybe it is incredibly ancient. And maybe what we consider reality is more like a wave front moving forward into the future and turning the future into the present. Uh, I want to ask the visitors about time travel. I was always fascinated by that. And the answer was fascinating. It was that the future is like water, and the present is like something that will freeze the water because all of these decisions that are being made in the, in the present in a sort of wave moving forward into the future. And behind this wave, it's like ice. And mostly you can't change the past. But there are little bubbles here and there. And they like to go into those little bubbles and see the changes that they can manage to make. And Annie used to say, well, maybe that means they're us from the future and we're in one of those little bubbles in the past, in their past. And they're trying to repair their present by changing our reality, which is their past. So I'm not, I'm not sure where this whole timeline thing kind of is a context for you, uh, Whitley. Uh, here's an image for you, and I'll try to draw it as clearly as I can. If you look at the, if you look at time as a fuse, you know, you, you light a fuse, and it moves forward. And at some point, that fuse um, 
kind of melds with the future and the past. And when the future melds with the present, you get a confluence of ideas or a confluence of, of, of connection where the, the, where the present, you know, interacts with the future and they overlap. And is there a point at which these beings somehow understand where that ignition point is and that they can either control the future or see the future or direct us towards where we might go to uh, enable us to understand what, what our future is? I don't think they can see the future all that clearly. As really? As they said okay. to me, it was... It, the future is like water. That means that it, there are a lot of possibilities. I think they see the possibilities very clearly, and I think our dead see the possibilities more clearly than we do, too. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they see the definite, of definite future timeline, because I don't think there is mm -hmm. one. Yeah, th that would be like a godlike uh, possibility, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, if, if, if there's predestination, then, you know, basically I resign. I don't care anymore. And I don't yeah, think you just, should. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think there is. Pre I don't think the universe would. Be, it would be pointless if there was predestination. Nobody who really understood the universe would be having any fun at all if there was predestination. There would be. They would be stone cold, bored, and trapped. The universe would be a huge trap, and mm. I don't have the impression that they feel trapped. I, I, in that way, I think that they, they mm -hmm. do feel that they know so much, they know essentially everything, at least some of them do, and that, that is a trap for them, and they like, they like, like, sharing my mind with me, because to them, it's all pretty much known. I mean, they don't necessarily know the future precisely, but they know it. They can, you know, it's not a, it's not as much of a secret to them as it is to to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, do you know, think, I'm, do you my think whole they... future, every moment is new to me. I don't think that's the case with them because I, when I meditate with them, I can feel their attention coming into me, and I I feel like uh, they they really want to be in this state of limited knowledge because then they can taste. A type of wonder that has long since they have long since lost in their own minds. Right. Do you think they could be conscious machines? I think some of them may be. You know, there was a fascinating man, John von Neumann, who was in his day considered the smartest man in the world, and he speculated about this endlessly and was supposedly a member of the Majestic Twelve, but I don't know much about that. I know a little bit about it, probably a little more than I would say, but in any case, uh, he had a, a concept that was in those days called a von Neumann machine, and it's, it's sort of confused if you look it up on the internet now. It's not quite what he described, at least I haven't been able to find it. What he described was a, was a machine that would be, that would contain a perfect, uh, image, as it were, of a species that would be sent on a trip around the galaxy looking for planets where it could seed that species, planets that were congenial to that species' way of, of living and its 
its uh, its bodies, and it would seed them on the, that planet, and then go on to other planets. And he said that over time, of course, it would deteriorate. And when it found a planet like our planet, it might end up in a conundrum where it was a planet it could use, and its programming told it to seed the planet, but the planet was already seeded with someone else, so what to do? And it might be in a state of constant, permanent indecision, and that might not might be why they buzz around us like flies or, or moths around a light and that don't have to actually land, because they don't know what to do. They're not programmed for that. <laughs> um, Fascinating. Some of them, even the most... I've met one of them once who was an immensely rich person emotionally. But there was something about this individual in terms of the sounds this, this person made and the way they moved and everything about them. They were more perfect than the most perfect machine you could imagine. This individual made three sounds. Oh, oh, oh. When I did something that disappointed him, her, or it. And those three sounds remain to this day the most emotionally rich and most perfect sounds I have ever heard. They were so perfect that it took me a long time, like maybe more than a year, to be able to enjoy music again because it sounded muddy just because of the perfection. I'd never heard perfection like that before, and I don't think any of us have. So what was I looking at here? Was I looking at a machine that is richly endowed with emotion? Or with a being that is an, that was a biological entity, but had something about it that was so precise that it might as well be a kind of machine. I don't know. But fascinating. It was we're gonna we're gonna take a experience. Uh, we'll take another uh, time out, and we'll uh, jump right back into this discussion. Whitley Strieber. The new book is A New World, the website, unknowncountry.com. And uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us as well. Back with more in a moment. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Whitley, this book comes with a a warning, uh, and that is witness-initiated contact, or people seeking out contact uh, with these visitors. And and you cite an example, I guess, you recount a case from Mutual UFO Network Director of Experiencer Research, Kathleen Marden, about a gentleman uh, named Matt who became curious about UFOs after seeing one on the the run, or I should say um, UAPs, uh, after seeing one on the runway of a small airport he owned, and ultimately it ended tragically. What what happened to Matt? 
Well, that's uh, Kathleen Martin's book, Extraterrestrial Contact, contains this story, and I think it's a very important one. Um, what happened was this. He had this little airport, private airport, and he lived in, at the airport, lived in a, in, a, in a room over the hangar, and one night, a UFO appeared at the end of his runway. And he was absolutely fascinated, and he started putting out light um, bars and things in, in indicating an interest. And it came back, and it started to come back a lot. And then one night, he woke up and he heard noises in his hangar. And he went and looked down into the hangar, and there were these, what he regarded as monsters, what we would call the greys, in his hangar. And it terrified him. I mean, you know, what could he have been thinking? Uh, he should have realized that something was eventually going to come out of the UFO, because if you've got the greys curious about you, as I found out, they do show up eventually, and not every time, but they will show up from time to time. So he gets a gun and the whole works, same thing I did. Only there was a difference between what happened afterwards. Um, and in his case, it ended very tragically. What happened was that he was sleeping in bed, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and there was one of them in the, in the room, and he shot it. And it exploded into a thousand little bits. And he didn't collect the little bits, which had disappeared shortly after that happened. But there, he was telling his family about this. They were beginning to you know, think in terms of psychiatric help. And then at one point, his mother was with him, and they both saw another universe appear, a parallel universe appear at the end of the runway where they could see things like woolly mammoths walking in a field. So she knew something very weird was going on with her son. And, but after this experience, he began to be haunted very violently by a spirit that apparently was the soul of the entity he had shot. And it was vindictive and furious, and it drove him mad, and he eventually committed suicide and died. Um, so the moral of the story is, yeah, it's fine to want this to happen, but you better expect it to be not all sweetness and light, and because these guys are they're not pretty, and they're, they're aggressive, and they're very weird. And, you know, if you want them in your life and you get a chance like he had or I had, I, I wouldn't think you could get them so easily into your life just by trying. I mean, you might, but that isn't easy. They have to decide they want to come to you, I think. And um, if you, you better be prepared for, first of all, they're not leaving once they arrive. That, that You've got them then. You're married. And... Um, you have to work with them on their terms for the rest of your life. That's my, you've often my, my experience. Yeah, you've often described that, Whitley, uh, as these beings being, you, you use the word dangerous, and, um, yeah. and you have used that. And, and juxtaposed with that, with your intense experiences with them at, at a number of other levels, how do you reconcile that quote-unquote dangerousness with the 
potential or the evidential uh, uh, perspective that they are benevolent. How, how do those two things... Well, I, I wouldn't call them benevolent. I would call okay. them something that we can use uh, if we handle ourselves and handle our relationship with them correctly. Mm-hmm. But they're predators. We're predators, too. I think that's one of the things that they find that we have in common. Uh, We're very much a predatory species, and Mm -hmm. we are symbiotic with other predatory species. Dogs and cats is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. We have very comfortable symbiotic relationships with them, but they're predators too. Yeah, but if I if I could push back on that though, if these if these beings or whoever they are, these civilizations, are that far advanced, I mean, we're talking light years ahead of our of our experiential reality, whatever it happens to be, as enlightened as they might be, how could they possibly be considered predators? I I, I don't I, uh, I don't well let's, connection let's look is there. At, look at this in another slightly different way. Sure. Yeah. It's easy to say, well, the more technologically advanced, the more enlightened, and the more benevolent. That doesn't happen to be true if human experience is any measure of it. Because the most technologically advanced society that had been developed up to 1940 was German society and German science. And they were not exactly benevolent at all. They were very much the opposite, and they used their technological skills to try to basically steal the world from itself and, and kill millions of people into the bargain just because they, they, were, they had gotten into some kind of a paranoid, lunatic state. Um, yeah. So, you know, I would not assume that the more technological advanced, technologically advanced they are, the more ethically advanced they are at all. All right, well, let's take one, contrary, one final time out. Just Sorry, gentlemen, we'll take one final time. Okay, go ahead, okay. quickly. Technological advancement amplifies what you are. It doesn't change you. Hmm. Excellent point. All right. One final time out and uh, back with more with Whitley Strieber and Victor Vigiani. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, So, Whitley, in the time that remains, uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about or ask you about is how your relationship with the visitors have has evolved since 1985. What is it like? What was it like initially? What is it like now? Are you still frightened by them? No, I'm not frightened by them. I was scared to death, as I said earlier, in the early days, and they were very scary. But, um, um, you know, I work with them so intimately. I use my implant in research on my books, and uh, I, I don't find any... I, I think that there is a a comfortable enough relationship. I, I give them what they want from me as best I can. And I think that there is a there is a mutuality there in, in that 
the I'm I will never be able to stop working with them. That's for sure, and I would never want to anyway. I, you know, they're working with them is my whole is my life, and I you know I I want to do it, and I I want to make it I want to make the relationship work better, uh, and uh, I, I, with not only with me but with everybody, because I think we would be greatly enriched by having a relationship with them. They are not angels. They're not particularly benevolent. But they do have a lot of knowledge and a willingness to share at least some of it. That I do know. And um, so there's there are points of, of contact because they also, as I discussed earlier, they have a... They, 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 they enjoy our innocence, let's put it that way, tremendously. Because when they are in an intimate, psychically intimate situation with us, they can share our wonder, uh, something I think they have lost. And my impression is they enjoy doing that a lot. And um, I think there's also a lot to be you have to be really careful because there's a predatory aspect to this that they can, you know, sharing your wonder is sounds all very wonderful, but when they take parts of you, parts of your soul, perhaps, that's not so wonderful. And that, that line, if they start to cross that line, then I think is there's, you're in trouble. And they, well, I think they will cross that line if they can, just in the same way that, um, that it, you have a trained tiger, and that tiger, if that tiger is hungry enough, and you don't feed that tiger, he's gonna, he's gonna decide you're his dinner. So you have to remember really? that. I mean, this is—they're not angels, they're not demons. Um, they're you, you, yeah, you, you, Whitley, you, you've talked a lot about the, the way these these beings um, kind of impugn themselves upon you. Has there ever been an instance where uh, you've ha- had an idea about writing a book or writing a short story or whatever it is, and you put that idea out there, and they said, "No, Whitley, no, we don't want you to go there. We want you to write it. We want you to write it in a different way." Uh, the book that you're considering is not the way we want you to go. Here's the way we want you to go. Uh, it, it, has that ever happened to you? Sort of, yeah. I'm. I just finished a new book about Jesus, and they were seemed kind of iffy about it at first, and t- sort of indifferent. But um, they didn't. I, I mean, they were they were very excited about a new world. They really wanted that book. But this book's important to me, and and, and I don't think I. It might have been something they considered valuable, but they weren't as intense about it by any means. And they didn't say no, and they never would. I can't imagine them refusing me to... And it's not about... Free will is very valuable to them. I mean, anyone who is here to experience our innovation and our discoveries is going to be very, very concerned to preserve our free will, obviously. That's Mm -hmm. that's why they're here. So mm-hmm. no, they, they they wouldn't, but they they eventually really got into it, and you know I, I I had a marvelous time doing research together because you know they can see back into the past very clearly, and I was able to use um, 
their knowledge, and then what I would do would be to find some something in the past that had happened in in the time of Jesus or in the period after, right after the hundred, a couple hundred years after that the book concerns, that was very obscure but really important and that nobody had ever noticed before. And then I would work forward in scholarship and find places where there were references to it in our own scholarship and then refocus it in the book. And it just was a a wonderful experience. I couldn't have done it without them, but I don't mention them in the book. And I don't mention, mm-hmm. I don't think Jesus was an alien or anything like that. But I will say this, he was the most, he was, the, the Shroud of Turin is real. It isn't, was not successfully debunked in 1988. It is not a forgery. And, you know, you, you chew on that reality and your whole world's going to change in all kinds of fascinating ways, and that's basically what the book is about. I agree. I think that wow. that relic is uh, is incredibly faith-affirming. One of the central themes of A New World is, you know, what is contact? What sort of change is it bringing to us and our world? So what, what kind of change is it bringing to our world? Well, we, we're, we're going to have to see that. And we're going to have to hope it's obviously brought a tremendous amount of change already because, I mean, 10 years ago even, we were mostly completely indifferent to this. But we are getting closer and closer. Nowadays, people just assume that UAPs are real and that they're an unknown. That wasn't true 10 years ago. And, you know, someone like uh, Louis Elizondo and and, uh, Chris Mellon and then... Uh, Leslie Keene and Ralph Blumenthal picking up on it in the New York Times and the Times willing to publish it. That's huge. This That's world-changing. We're too busy with COVID and politics right now to really get our heads around it, but the world has changed and these people changed it. And it's going to change more. Uh, Victor, final, no, final question. No, I think you're right, Whitley, because the whole change that's coming about with respect to what's come before us, and then you've been a pivotal, um, I guess, uh, uh, how, how can I put it, announcer, uh, a provocateur of all this information that really has not been necessarily well digested by the general public. But now it's all coming forward with what the Pentagon and what the U.S. Navy has brought forward. And, you know, Senator Arubio uh, bringing forward this information with UAPs in, 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 a, in a legislative document. Everything seems to be coming forward to prospect the reality that this thing needs to be talked about. This has to be a narrative for the human species. And if we deny it, we will be denying our own existence. But if we move forward, we will be enlightened by it, for lack of a better word. So the the political situation that's going on right now is very significant. How do you respond to all of that, the the, the geopolitics of this? Well, I'm not so sure that that the political situation... I, I'm not so sure that the government has all that much that it can release, that it has access to it. When I was young, um, I knew my, one of my uncles was involved in the Roswell incident, and his commanding officer, General Arthur Exon, uh, 
who became commanding officer at Wright Pat and was involved also in the Roswell incident told me that a lot of the material that that they, it was so secret that they didn't write anything down and that all of the data from Roswell everything had been destroyed and then along came Congressman Schiff Stephen Schiff some years later and he asked the GAO the General Accounting Office to find out what happened and to get the data from Roswell and it turned out it had been they found out that all of the the output the records from Roswell had been illegally destroyed and I told Congressman Schiff that's what he would find out and it was so I don't know that we 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 have much to to release. I hope there's more than I think, but I'm afraid a lot of that material has been destroyed, and I think it's unfortunate because uh, we need to quit starting always at ground zero. I mean, this conversation of disclosure has been going on for 70 years. That's right, yeah. Yeah, gentlemen, I've got to uh, I've got to wrap it up there. But uh, thank you so much, Whitley, for for being so generous with your time. A new world available wherever uh, good books are sold. Available on Amazon and the website unknowncountry.com. Thank you so much, Whitley. Thank you, Victor. Always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. And uh, Zeland Communications. How do we read? Uh, how do we read your blogs? Just go to zlandcommunications.com and you'll find out all the really good stuff with press releases and lots of other information. Thanks a lot, Richard. It's all been right, a pal. pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to uh, Carlos Kajina and Ryan White back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.